most people, I just, they just sort of fear what they don't understand. But we, if we were out there, more people that were out there like myself in the forefront, explaining who we are and what we do and what we experience, I think all those fears would dissipate. I'm Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder of Grapevine Health and your host of the Grapevine Health Podcast, a podcast highlighting stories, health insights, and experiences of community members. We started this podcast because too often discussions and decision-making about health and the healthcare system don't include perspectives from the people we serve. So listeners, if you have a personal story or an experience from working in the community or on the front lines of healthcare, contact us and we might have you on the show. This week, I'm talking to Adrian Williams, a community health activist and someone living with sickle cell disease. We'll learn a lot from him today. Yes. Hi, Adrian. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Thank you for talking to me today. I'm excited to hear um, hear you give us a little wisdom about sickle cell. <laughs> a little is the key word, little. Um, let's just get right into it. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and tell people what you do? Sure. Uh, namely, uh, my name is Adrian Williams. I am a sickle cell patient um, diagnosed when I was a young child. As a young child, I struggled horrendously with this disease, so much so that I never, in my wildest dream, thought I would live beyond 20. I just did. Wow. Uh, thankfully. Why, Why was that? Because that was sort of the, the life expectancy of someone born with sickle cell back then. So it was pretty, it was pretty bleak. <laughs> And how old are you now? Oh, I'm well past 40. (laughs) (laughs) And as a result of my wellness, I took a embarked on a wellness journey, which we'll talk about later. I'm I've been able to be crisis hospitalization free for almost 12, 13 years now. So I really fought long and hard on this path towards wellness. And as I did that, I figured I owed this community something. I, I owed this community some ability to help them maybe take the same journey and at the same time help physicians and clinicians all around the country be more sympathetic about sickle cell patients when they're dealing with them in an emergency room setting in a clinical setting. So that's who I am and I became an advocate and I, I do uh, public speakings and I speak to doctors and uh, patient groups and I also write. I've been published in the medical journal which is awesome. Oh wow, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> it's been an amazing journey but the best part of the journey is just helping another family another caretaker, another patient, sort of unravel the complexity of this disease. And that's why I really do this, you know? Yeah, great. Well, why don't we just start with the basics? Why don't you tell people what sickle cell anemia is? Well, sickle cell anemia is uh, a blood disorder. When it doesn't have oxygen, when the body doesn't have enough oxygen, or it's under duress or stress or too cold, or sometimes dehydrated and too hot, a normal blood cell, which is sort of cyclic, cyclical in motion, circular, motion would turn into like a crescent shape. And when it takes that new shape as a crescent, it makes it more difficult for the blood and oxygen flow to get through the veins and, and supply vital organs. <clears throat> and when that occurs, uh, a patient goes into a crisis. And that crisis can be in their arms, their shoulders, their chest, their hips, their legs, anywhere in their body. And that crisis can last anywhere from a couple of hours to a week or so. And in doing, and when you're in midst of the crisis, the pain level is horrendous. And it requires a uh, narcotic uh, pain medication like uh, oxycodone or intravenous pain medicine like uh, morphine. 
Um, <clears throat> and then while you're struggling with the crisis, your your organs are under duress as well. So you can you can experience a stroke or a heart attack or something like that, or even death. So it's a very, very difficult disease to manage in its crisis form. And the long-term repercussions of crisis, it can have a, a sort of a lingering effect on your liver, your kidney, your heart, your lungs, your hips and joints. So it has a lingering effect. So even when you do recover from the crisis, there is sort of a residual effect, sort of ages you a little quicker, your joints and your bones, and it sort of works on your vital organs a little, a little so you would age a little more quicker than a normal person would without this disease. And there are also some uh, neurological effects that comes with this as well. There's been uh, instances where sickle cell the patients- ner The nervous system. The nervous system, and, and, the, and, and the brain as well. So you can suffer infarcts, like a little mini stroke. Mm -hmm. And the accumulation of these mini strokes over time can just uh, impair your ability to think rationally and reasonably. And it's just, it's just wrought with challenges like crazy. So why do you think so few people know about sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease? I think it's mostly because it's a, it's a minority. It's a black, it's a Mediterranean, it's a, Latin, it's a Latin, it's an Central American kind of thing. And the population is relatively small. It's not really small. It's probably the same size of individuals who suffer from uh, cystic fibrosis. So our population is about the same as their population. It's the same as their sort of hemophiliac population, but we, sent, we tend to seem to get less funding in terms of research and, and things like that. And again, mostly because we're a minority type of disease and we don't have a lot of people out there uh, lobbying on our behalf and pulling those strings of government to get funding for research and development. I also think, and I've heard this from patients as well, and having experienced it as a provider, there's a stigma associated with having sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. So why is it stigmatized? I also think, again, because of, of being minorities, being people of color. Mm. And, and also, I think it's also stigmatized because is there's a, a serious connection to the relief of chronic pain with opioid use. So with those two combined with an opioid crisis in our country, people also misdiagnose a lot of people suffering from sickle cell disease as opioid abuse abusers. Mm -hmm. So the stigma comes with that. And I think it's us, another stigma level is the fact that a lot of people just don't really understand and we fear what we don't understand. You know, most people think they're going to catch it, <laughs> which is not possible. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. so most people, are just they just sort of fear what they don't understand. But we, if we were out there, more people that were out there like myself in the forefront explaining who we are and what we do and what we experience, I think all those fears would dissipate. You, you may know that I have worked for a Medicaid program in the past, and uh, people with sickle cell disease have often um, been flagged as a group that needs more support and the care for people with sickle cell disease is often more costly because so many people go to the emergency room to get care. So I would love to hear your thoughts about why that's happening. Why are people going to the emergency room? And then what kind of system of care do you think should be in place to prevent that from happening? People are going to the emergency room because you got to remember, this is a very sporadic and sort of on and off type of disease. So at one point you can meet someone with sickle cell and they appear to be in full health. And a week later, the person can be in the hospital fighting for their life. And which means that's an interruption in education. And then also translate to an interruption in employment. 
So when you have this sort of in and out of hospital, in and out of employment, what comes with that? You're in and out of, but you're on the financial duress. So a lot of times people with this disease are living sort of on the margins and in the margins in terms of financially. So there's sometimes their only recourse is the emergency room care because they've lost a doctor because they lost a job. They lost healthcare because they lost a job. They dropped out of college, they restarting college. So their lives are just off and on, on again, off again, on again, off again. So that explains us some of that. And as you know, one of the biggest weights on our, on our healthcare system is the fact that most of us don't have healthcare. So if you're experiencing a major crisis which may be threatening your life, you're not gonna experience that at home alone. You're gonna to go to the emergency room, whether you have healthcare or not. Right. So, and then, and then when you do that, you have that reticence in the healthcare system, like, wait, this person doesn't have any care. This doesn't, doesn't have a primary physician. So it's just all sort of cracks that patients like myself can fall into when they're in and out of employment, in and out of education, and living in the margins in terms of how much income they're earning and their ability to live the lives they want to live. So, so what do you mean when you say people are in and out of education? I think this disease makes it very, very difficult for people to sort of stay in school, do well in school and graduate. It takes so much tenacity for any patient mm. knowing they can be sick for two weeks, uh, 15 days, keeping up with your school works, keeping up with your college courses, keeping up and then keeping up with employment. So this disease is sinister in terms of just being so amazingly disruptive in your life. So you can land that great job with your great resume but in six weeks, you could be in the hospital yeah. or you get that great school, Yale, Harvard, Howard University, whatever. But you may struggle really mightily to graduate because your health is just holding you back and making your life sort of haphazard. But you did it. So what's the secret? What advice do you give people? <laughs> to make it you know, I think this disease partners a lot with the difficulty of being a minority. It just does. This sickle cell disease and being a minority, they, they are often wrought with the same amount of challenges. And even a, even a minority, even a person of color who doesn't have a chronic disease struggles with just living in this sort of system that's not really designed for us or cares about us. So, you know, when we finally get into school and we have another layer of challenges heaped upon us, and even in the psychology of those challenges heaped upon us, and then those the, the, the accumulative uh, effect of those challenges on us play psychological tricks with us as well. So we, start, we begin to doubt ourselves. Mm -hmm. I can't do school, I can't do college, I can't do career because I don't know when this thing is gonna erupt in my life and be disruptive and prevent me from going to college, prevent me from uh, uh, not just getting this job but doing excelling in this job. So it's just so amazingly disruptive and it just plays so many games with us. And then, as we talked about earlier, it has a cumulative effect on our sort of psychology as well. Not just the emotional part, but our real psychology, how our brains are functioning. So you take all that and put it with black skin, <laughs> the challenges that come with that, and you have someone who's just sort of rot with anxiety, rot with depression, rot with uncertainty. And the way I figured that out was just, <clears throat> I wanted to take some time myself and figure out, look at all the challenges that were before me. And I really just tried my best to dissect those challenges that were before me as a, as not just a black man, but a man with a chronic disease. And I said, if, I have, if I'm going to give myself a chance to be even remotely successful in this thing called life, I got to figure out how to unravel some of this complexity.
And a lot of that was just <clears throat> recreating my own sort of world, you know, and recreating my own diet, recreating how I embraced wellness, recreating what I even call friends and romantic relationships. Because I, I wanted all healthy things in my life. Because I knew anything that was unhealthy or dysfunctional in my life would just make me spiral downward. So I really just investigated how do I become healthy? How do I, you know, cleanse myself of dysfunctional behavior when I saw it all around me? <laughs> and how do I just live in this functional, highly functional world that gives me a shot at being successful? It doesn't give me, it doesn't guarantee anything, but just I wanted a chance at being successful. So I really had to be very uh, mindful of who I invited to my life. You know, the, what kind of food I ate, how well I was sleeping, where I lived, what was in my social circle? What kind of jobs were I taking? Were they overly stressful for no reason? And so I just really plotted my life out a way where I have to do this for my own psyche. I have to do this for my own health. And then it began to get easier and easier. And a lot of it was just luck too. I found nice supportive people. Um, I like healthy foods. <laughs> I mean, I could have went down this road and like, I don't like Brussels sprouts or I don't like cabbage and I don't like vegan. I don't like any of that stuff, but I happen to like that stuff. And I happen to like drinking a lot of water and I happen to like going to bed early. So a lot of stuff really just sort of made myself fit into this lifestyle of health and wellness. And it sort of sort of worked for me. It's a different kind of mindset and how you trick yourself and how you inspire yourself. But mm -hmm. I think our culture is so capable because if you look at our culture in its past, that's where we were years ago. We were the ones eating from the ground, from the earth. We were the first vegans. We were the first naturalists. We were the first re ones rejecting processed foods. And then something happened. Something happened in our culture. But we were the ones wanting to eat nothing but from the fruit of the earth. You know, and then all of a sudden, we like restaurants and fast foods. And yeah, and wow. And so it took quite a bit of, of self-discipline. And so you were consistent and disciplined and, and you made it happen. So yeah, I think, you know, I have this conversation with my sister all the time, and, and I was, we always talk about how the path to the next level is like stones in a pond, you know, where you're trying to cross the pond by putting one foot on the stone, and is it stable enough to put the next foot on the stone? Right. And is it, you know, so you have to have some sort of faith and some sort of confidence, and that, that stone in the pond has to be secure enough to sustain you for a minute, where you can believe you can put the other foot there. Mm. But... You know, if you put that foot out on the stone and it's a little slippery, some people turn around and walk back. You yeah. know, some people aren't going, aren't, they don't have the will to, wait a minute, let me just settle myself here, you know, and then put my next foot on the stone. So it's a lot of this, you know, belief and luck and faith and God and spirituality that puts you out on that path and makes you, and makes you believe it. You yeah. know, I have to believe this because I want to cross this pond because something wonderful over there. That's a really powerful metaphor. Thank you for that. So tell us about treatment. Is sickle cell disease treatable? I think there is a lot of uh, misinformation about that as well. There is. There are some treatments out there, hydroxyurea being one of them. Uh, hydroxyurea is a drug that sort of increases your fetal hemoglobin level. But when we're born, the reason we're most healthy is when we're born because we have a high, super high level of fetal hemoglobin. So most children from one to five usually don't get a lot of chronic illnesses, don't get pneumonia, don't get a lot of colds because they just have such a great immune system. And then as they age out, five, six, seven, that hemoglobin starts to drop. It's like super white blood cells, if you were. And so as we get five, six, and seven, that fetal hemoglobin level starts to decline in us. 
leaving us more susceptible. So if we were, we were, we were born with sickle cell disease, that would be the time we would start having a crisis, right in that six, seven window, when that fetal hemoglobin would stop. But usually an 18 month old baby isn't suffering from a crisis because the fetal hemoglobin levels are so high. So that's my best explanation there. Yeah, what hydroxyurea does is increase that level of fetal hemoglobin, which prevents the, sickle, the cells from sickling. And which prevents most, which not doesn't prevent totally, but sort of stretches out the duration in which we experience a crisis. And for me, it's, it's that with my wellness um, approach and delivery and sort of belief has stretched out mine for like 10, 15, some odd years. How would you like for healthcare providers to be more responsive to the needs of people with sickle cell disease? I think the biggest thing that I would change is the urgency in which we respond to a sickle cell disease patient who enters an emergency room. You know, because, you know, sadly, most sickle cell patients sort of triage themselves. So if we're talking about a young sickle cell patient or even an older sickle cell patient, they'll begin to feel sick, say, on a Thursday afternoon. And then they run this sort of gamut in their head. How sick am I? What should I do? Should I take some over-the-counter mm-hmm. meds? Should I stay home? Should I go to an emergency room? And they run through this whole check-down triaging thing for probably anywhere from six hours to three days, sadly. Um, so sometimes when that patient enters the emergency room, they've already been sick for sometimes up to three days. So now their pain level is beyond 10. So my biggest uh, dream is to help patients better triage themselves. So, you know, the, the more connected you are with your wellness and with your own personal health, you can sort of begin to be a better triager. Like right now, I'll know when a serious crisis is approaching and what I need to do urgently as opposed to going, mm, I don't know if this is going to be serious and that maybe I'll wait till it's Monday because right. I do want to go to movies tomorrow night. You know what I mean? And then it escalates and then I'm like, ooh, I made the wrong call. And I've done that in my lifetime where I've made the wrong call. And I've also made the call where I've gone to emergency room too soon and I've gotten there, my pain starts to dissipate, but that's a good call. Cause right. I'm, still, I'm still in the thing of our health and I'm still can be worked on while I'm there. And that's better than being home and it goes the wrong way. So I just wish uh, clinicians and providers would be a little more urgent in how they approach sickle cell when they're in that waiting room area. And we're fighting now, me and some other doctors and all my work last year was really dedicated to um, making sickle cell disease patients a level two triage as opposed to a level three triage. And what does that mean? And what that means is a level one triage would be a heart attack or a stroke or gunshot. Mm -hmm. Someone who's immediately bleeding and is under immediate duress. They would go back first. They, would, they, they wouldn't even stop the waiting. They'd just go right back to a bed and be treated right away. Level two is everyone that falls after that. So you're not bleeding, but if you're level two, you would go right in after that person would go in. So that elevates the urgency right there. And I don't think that's a national mandate now, but I think that's being discussed around the country, raising, raising that triage level to two, which would be tremendous. Another thing they're discussing is when a sickle cell disease patient walks into the waiting room, to treat them in the waiting area. Don't even wait till they get back uh, in the w- emergency room. Treat them in the waiting room. There's this thing called nasal fentanyl that's being used in some parts of the country where if a sickle cell patient comes in in crisis, they can treat that person while they're waiting in the emergency room, in the waiting area, which is, for me, revolutionary, that you could provide some relief to that person and bring maybe that pain level down a little, little bit while they're in the waiting area. And by the time they get back to a bed, 
you can give you can introduce another another injection of nasal fentanyl, and maybe we can arrest this um, crisis and send that person home in a couple of hours. So that's what I want clinicians and, and emergency room physicians to do, just to be a little more urgent. And another thing I'd like them to do is take the whole notion of opioid abuse out of the conversation in the emergency room setting. Mm -hmm. There is no one there in the emergency room setting can diagnose drug abuse in that setting. You know, now when that person is provided comfort, you can send a social worker in and say, hey, you know, we just wanna make sure you're okay. And we wanna make sure you're not abusing opioids because we wanna make sure they work for you when you, need, when, they, when you need them. But while someone is in the rest, that is the wrong time to have any conversation about drug abuse. It just is. And that's occurring all over the country as I speak. Yeah, and what is your advice? Because the providers are human as well. And as much as we're talking about implicit bias, especially now with conversations about health equity, we need to be able to provide some concrete suggestions for how we can be introspective, recognize when we are uh, exhibiting bias, uh, bias-related behaviors. So anything come to mind for providers to help them check themselves in that moment when they may see a person with sickle cell disease and their instinct is to think, okay, opioid abuser. You know, there's so much power in these encounters that physicians are just sort of driving by without really acknowledging. And you know, I always tell people, every encounter provides an opportunity for magic and for, and for elevation. And if we just would stop all the clinician stuff and all the suspicion stuff and just be human for a minute, we could somehow leapfrog that. And now I know there's racism built in everything and implicit bias is built in everything. But when you can have encounters like that and when people can just remember their own humanity, you know, in that emergency room setting. And when a physician can pull that curtain back and think about his daughter or his grandson or his wife, if he's out of town and can I carry it, it then you, you supersede all that stuff. You get right to the heart of the matter. You're human, you're here for my help and I can provide it. You know, and if you're a really good doctor, like if you're a really good guitar player or a singer or a soccer player, you can provide that level of care under any circumstance because this is what you do, you're a professional. So I understand you work 14 hours a day. I get that, we get tired too. But when you pull the curtain back and that's someone you care about, you, you, let, you level up. You just level up to the situation, you know, and you meet, you meet the demand. So I, you know, I just think a lot of doctors just forget who they are and the power they have. And I, I think there's a lot of implicit biases that we can sort of, sort of correct. But for the most part, if we get past that stuff and get past the, hey man, I can really make a difference in this person's life. You know, I can see this person maybe for the first time in this person's life, and I can acknowledge him as an equal, as a human, you know? And I always tell people, you know, sometimes we're always saving our best for the best. <laughs> you know, we are. We're like, oh, uh, there's, a, uh, there's, a basketball, there's a guy who plays the wizard in, in, uh, in Curtain 2. And so we level up because we want to impress the wizard. Michael Jordan's over, he just sprained his ankle. So we want to be, we want to, like, so give your best to someone who's never seen it. Mm-hmm. That's when you make a difference. You don't think Michael Jordan's had people kissing his butt for the last 40 years of his life? Yes, he has. My thing is provide your best to someone who's never seen it. That's where your impact is going to make the most. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for having me. appreciate you and your time. All right. You take care. 
That was Adrian Williams educating us about sickle cell disease. He offered insights about how we can transform healthcare delivery for people living with the condition. Thanks for listening to the Grapevine Health Podcast. Our producer is Nicholas Elias. Please like us on social media. You can find us at Grapevine Health on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Health Grapevine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa, signing off.